So I have to confess something to you. When all the noise started to kick off about ChatGPT, I kind of dismissed it as hype. You know, it was fun. Sure, it was a lot of fun. But it was another AI toy like those image generators that was here today but would drop off the radar in six months. But then I couldn't help but notice how many of my friends kept talking about how they were using it. Not how exciting it was, not how cool it was, not how it was going to change the world. Oh my God, we're all going to the moon, hooray. They were actually talking about being users, how it was helping them to get stuff done day to day. And that's when I started to pay more attention. And wouldn't you know, yeah, I've become a day-to-day user myself. Tell you the number one thing I use it for, it rewrites my LinkedIn posts. It's just way better at that kind of corporatese tone than I am. So, yeah, I get AI to leverage my synergies these days. So while I've started to see it as an actual useful tool, until recently, I assumed it was a tool that was owned by people with access to supercomputers, or at least massive AWS cluster budgets. Not so. I recently got talking to Toby Funkheinel, and he's opened my eyes. This stuff is now firmly going into the hands of regular developers. We're about to see personalized AI on our desktops, because we're about to have the tools to hack them together ourselves. And I think it probably won't be long before, you know, when you check out a new programming language, you end up installing a language extension that ships with syntax highlighting and LSP and debugger support and a custom AI model that's been trained specifically for the language by the extension's developer. I can see it coming. And I think by the end of this episode, you'll be able to see it coming too. And if it excites you, as I hope it will, Toby's got some explicit tips on how to get started building this stuff. So let's figure out how to put AI in our hands. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices. And today's voice is Toby Funkheiner. Joining me today is Toby Funkheinel. Toby, how are you doing? Oh, pretty great. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm, good. I'm glad to see you. We saw each other in person last week, which is yes. a rare treat for me as a podcast host. And the week before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did, actually. You were in England the week before, and I was in Germany the week yes. after. So who knows what we'll do next week. <laughs> But I one of the things we got to talking about when we first met was um, OpenAI, right? I've always mm-hmm. thought of OpenAI as this enormous, very clever database of billions of whatevers that is the state of the art and completely out of our hands and this tool we use. And then you mentioned to me this blog post from someone at Google. Um, we have no moat, I think it was yes, called. exactly. And it basically said, <laughs> to paraphrase, oh, God, we're being hosed by the open source world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, this is what I want you to tell me about. How can we run our own op- open APIs? The open source side is sufficiently rich that we can get involved. Yes. So uh, the state of the technolo- uh, technology today is that uh, it's possible even to run LLMs on hardware that do not even have a GPU. 
Uh, that's uh, that's how far uh, it has progressed. Uh, first, a note of caution that a memo, it was written by a Google employee and it was said to be a leak. It was maybe not meant to be published. And also it's a, it's a solitary opinion, but still it gained lots of media coverage. And um, at the time it was published, um, Meta had uh, recently released uh, some of their uh, first generation large language models, the Llama models. Yeah, uh, like I think spelled like the animal, only with a slightly different capitalization. Mm. And large language model. Yeah, What's the last something day? like that. I, I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> Wikipedia would know. Uh, and uh, yeah, of course, uh, Meta is uh, a competitor to Google in in some ways. But uh, what they had done is they open sourced the models. They published them under an open source license, and then. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they only limited the access to the model weights, which are needed to, uh, to really use the models. And, uh, they, they provided researchers access to that according to a waiting list. And then, um, after a while, like two weeks, I think, after they started in the beginning of March this year, uh, the weights also were, uh, well, it said leaked. Uh, they appeared, uh, to be, uh, uh, People could download them uh, via torrent at first, and then um, the whole thing really took off. Yeah, because suddenly there were reasonably capable models, uh, not at the level of GPT-4 uh, by far, but uh, capable. Uh, and some of them could be run on consumer-grade hardware from the start. And so everybody could suddenly get into uh, LLM research without needing a cluster, without needing uh, like some some uh, membership in a research group or some some access that was limited to that point and it seems many people were eager to get their hands on that kind of technology and so within the span of a few months yeah since march uh, multiple things have happened so in the let me just check i've got this right yeah, first so the model is like how do we configure this big clever neural network mm. right and then the weights are like once you've configured it, you have to run vast amounts of data through it to train it. And you end up with the magic multipliers that set the weight of the neural net, right? Um, so you need so, those two pieces to do anything interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I need to be careful here because uh, I've done lots of things with those Llama-based models at home. But the thing I haven't done is uh, to try to fine-tune it or to try, to try to train a model myself from the ground up. and um, so I, I might just be saying nonsense here, but uh, the yeah. So the model is something that needs to be trained, and then um, what happens there? Um, the state of the art in terms of LLMs it uses uh, transformer-based architecture, and uh, it it goes back to a paper from I think 2016 or something uh, that uh, that is titled. Um, Attention is all you need, and basically, um, it uh, it introduces um, an attention mechanism in the way uh, into the way that uh, models are trained, and then it's possible with an existing uh, model to fine tune it. And I think what you receive there. Uh, that's probably the weights, but better look it up. I'm, uh, as I say, I'm going to get into that at some point to, to work on it myself. But right now, uh, the simple use cases, they are interesting enough when it comes to applications. And so um, I'm, I'm just retelling basically what happened. Um, uh, <coughs> started to be multiple things that made it easier for people to run, um, run their models on more and more hardware. 
um, and uh, lower and lower spec hardware. And so at first there was a way to kind of, if I understand it right, modularize the, the fine tunings uh, called QLoRa. And that was even before I got into uh, working with those models. And by now it is, um, what has happened is uh, the models have been re-quantized firstly. Yeah, so... Right. Um, Quantize, uh, quantization, maybe um, I quickly uh, say something about that. I think um, the original LAMA models, they were quantized with 16-bit numbers, yeah, as far as I understand it. yeah. So you are dealing with vector spaces, which have uh, like a few hundred or a few thousand dimensions in current uh, generation um, large language models. And um, then um, words are represented or tokens, which might be a bit shorter than words or sometimes might be multiple words in a few cases. Um, they are represented as uh, vectors and those vectors, they consist of numbers. Yeah, Like in a 500 dimensional vector space, you would have uh, one token and it is assigned a vector which uh, has 500 numbers. And uh, those those numbers, they need to be uh, multiplied a lot. Yeah, those vectors uh, multiplied with matrices to uh, do the whole processing of the large language model. And basically, that's something that GPUs are uh, specialized uh, to, to do. They perform well on this. So um, essentially, you're downloading a giant matrix database of 16-bit floating point numbers. Yeah, yeah. That's right. the way I imagine it. And um, the quantization then... Um, what uh, what happens there is uh, initially you have 16-bit uh, precision numbers, floating-point numbers, and uh, it turns out if you just uh, decrease the 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 well exactitude, I don't know how how we would call it in English precision uh, precision yes the precision of the numbers uh, to eight bit or nowadays even to four bit and then people are going even lower than that the LLMs still perform and uh, deliver useful output. And that, of course, means uh, it makes a huge difference if you're multiplying a 16-bit number with a 16-bit number or if you're multiplying like a 4-bit number with a 4-bit number and then what you need to save in terms of uh, what what needs to be stored in memory, what, what you need in terms of storage, then uh, how often the memory needs to be swapped in and out. And uh, then, of course... Uh, what kinds of hardware are capable of running these models. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a big part of the recent progress that has been happening, just decreasing the quantization and by that enabling more and more people to run those things on their own hardware. So people have been like down sampling these databases so you can mm -hmm. run it on more commodity hardware and see if it still gives you a good enough result. Yes. And some that's of cool. the research in the academic field that's uh, going on is also dealing with this and uh, testing and comparing uh, according to various benchmarks. If I uh, decrease the quantization further or if I try to become a bit smarter about uh, the whole vector space and maybe uh, am a bit more exact in some areas and a bit less exact in other areas, um, how can I get uh, close to the 16-bit original model's uh, output uh, quality um, with much, much uh, lower resource usage. Yeah, yeah. You would think uh, as soon as you've published a useful database of 16-bit floating point matrices, someone who knows about compression 
who get involved, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, many yeah. people uh, got involved, and some some really specialized into that. There are some people who who are regularly uh, like uh, requantizing new models uh, or fine tunings of the original Llama models that appear. Then by now, it's not only the Llama models that are there, and since. Uh, bless you. And yeah. since um, the, I think since the middle of May, um, there's a there's a library that's called Llama CPP, which is based on uh, C++. It's been around a bit longer than May, but what happened in May is it uh, started to offer a way to run uh, the models in a mixed mode between CPU and GPU, and people can just. Uh, okay set a config i want to have this number of layers which are processed in uh, by the gpu and uh, are living in the video ram and all the, all the rest can live in the just the normal uh, what is called cpu ram in this context just the normal ram of uh, of the computer and then if you have a model that is maybe a size of uh 60 gigabytes and you have a graphics card that maybe has 10, 12 gigabytes VRAM or 24 is pretty common with the, uh, with the top of the line uh, gaming GPUs is fairly mm. widespread. <clears throat> then you can just say, okay, I want to have a part of it running in my GPU, uh, lying in my GPU. And then if it's maybe just a bit too big for the GPU RAM, just a few layers need to be computed by CPU. And then you get already very good co uh, performance and it's very flexible. Okay. Yeah. Cause that kind of network neural network topology does lend itself to having multiple stages in different places yes but okay so here i am i recently bought myself a new macbook and it has way more gpus than i think i need so if i want to put that to an ai what kind of i want you to tell me how to do it but first what kind of results can i expect on my little laptop yeah it depends on the specs i would say yeah so um I mean, you nowadays you could basically, I think, with uh, if you just have sixty-four gigabytes of RAM, normally RAM in in that notebook, uh, then you can run all of the Llama-based models um, in in some quantizations like four-bit or five-bit, or I think even. Yeah, well, with 65 billion parameters, that's the biggest uh, Llama model that has been released. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I think even that should fit. Um, uh, the thing is, uh, the more that the CPU gets involved, the performance uh, in terms of token output, token token frequency, it decreases. But the quality of the output does not decrease. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. Oh, it's just like it speed to answer. Yes, exactly. Down, yeah. Yeah, you would think, right, logically, we've spent all these years building these dedicated circuits for multiplying matrices so it can display polygons on the screen. Yeah. It's nice to know there's another useful reason for it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Th these specialized matrix multipliers. Hmm. So what does this actually translate to? I'm going to, you're going to tell me how I can run my own local version of an API. Because one thing I would like to do with something like this is the problem with open API is it never has that specialized data set you're interested in. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And uh, that's uh, that's where vector databases come in. That's a, it's okay. another uh, component that can be used in the stack. Uh, just now you were saying open API. I think uh, you're referring to open AI, right? And, Sorry, uh, open yes. AI, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I think open AI also has various uh, ways for people to uh, to just um, 
post their their data to them and they will uh, then host it and uh, give uh, give people a way to use it with their models i've never tried that yet but uh, the exciting thing is that actually if you have your own data and it's just uh, not part of any model that has been trained or fine tuned and also you're you're not getting into uh, fine tuning because it's uh, still fairly expensive or maybe not that easy um, then uh, you can just use a vector database together with an embedding model. That's uh, today a very, very low threshold to, uh, uh, threshold uh, of entry, a very low entry threshold uh, <laughs> way to uh, to use your own data with uh, LLMs. And yeah. Okay, how does that work? What's the architecture there? Yes. Where the pieces fit um, together? So uh, there are embedding models, um, which are the purpose of them is to uh, take some input, which is in natural language, uh, most commonly, and to translate it into vectors. And yeah, so for example, I have a big book or I have a collection of documents. Then um, what I do is, uh, firstly, I will do some processing on them. They uh, should be nicely formatted, yeah, not not too many uh, errors because uh, then the, the retrieval would also suffer later on. And mm. then I split up that book into chunks and those chunks are individually um, processed by an embedding model. And uh, so each each of those document chunks, they might be like 500 or 1,000 characters long uh, or something like that, is also assigned a vector. And um, those vectors, they um, they often, if if the embedding model is well suited uh, to the domain and to the language that uh, that the book is uh, is published in, um, then those vectors they uh, correspond somewhat to the semantics. Yeah, so I can uh, I can do uh, when I have done this kind of embedding, as it's called. Uh, the connecting the snippets with the vectors, I can do natural language retrieval, which means I can just write a question in natural language. Mm. And um, then uh, this question will also go through the same embedding model and then uh, will also be transformed into a vector. And then uh, what's what's fairly simple is uh, to find uh, what, what is the distance between two vectors. And so um, then using that query, um, the document snippets from before uh, that are closest to the query vector, they are retrieved from the vector database. And often it turns out uh, they are semantically close to the query. So you can have a big uh, big uh, document and uh, quickly search it using natural language, uh, somewhat fuzzy, and it's, it's a lot of trial and error for people getting into it. But also nowadays there are open source embedding models for download There's, uh, to tool like LangChain to, to to connect it all up. And then vector databases are also something that people can run on their uh, local systems. There are open source vector databases. So let me check I've understood this. Yeah. Um, so I get a vector database, like maybe I the extensions for Postgres or something like Weaviate or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I chop up my, let's say my product documentation. Apache Kafka documentation, there's loads of it. It's yes. really hard to search. I chop that up. It gets turned into vectors of floating point numbers in the database. Then I say, how do you configure a partition in Kafka? Mm -hmm. It turns that into a floating point vector and then finds yes. other vectors near it yes. by the magic of indexes. Um, yes, indexes are important as well because, uh, of course, if you have lots and lots of documents in the database and need to compute like the distance uh, of the query to all of the other vectors, that would take a long time. So there are clever ways to do indexing and to like put 
for example, the the closest vectors uh, to uh, to uh, one vector that's already in the database in the index, so that the search can happen uh, quickly. But yes, that's that's exactly what happens, and this is also exactly one of the use cases that uh, could be treated by that. That's cool. Okay, so I want to get into how that relates to things like large language models, but let's just check first. Is that language agnostic? I mean, human, Mm. like if I wanted to do that in German, would I have exactly the same experience? Uh, probably not. So there's, uh, there's different embedding models and, uh, there's, uh, this platform called Hugging Face where you can find lots of, uh, different uh, machine learning models in general. They have embedding models. They have large language models for download, for, uh, and for trying them out, doing research on them. And, uh, Hugging Face also hosts a leaderboard and uh, a leaderboard for the embedding models. And then you can find uh, which are the top performers according to various categories. And uh, most of the embedding models, they are primarily uh, focusing on the English language. And uh, so the availability there is much better. But then um, the creators of those embedding models, they uh, I remember the one I'm using, I, I read the comments and there were, was positive feedback for one of the English language specific models, according to training anyway, that they yeah. also perform well for uh, East Asian languages, for example. And That's I, yeah, and I, I, I tried German as well, and uh, it seems to work as well. Um, I, I haven't looked into the details of that, but I, I I would imagine maybe the training data of that uh, model also just contains some amount of uh, of content that is not in English. Yeah, you have a book, and uh, maybe uh, that book is for some reason multilingual and it's used to train uh, that model. Or you have data from the web, and then people ra- post in forums. I don't know what they use in multiple languages, and then so coincidentally that also works. Yeah, and for German, uh, I- I've tried it out with. Uh, model that is meant to be used with English and also it, it worked for me. The output made sense and uh, it's trial and error in that case. Okay, that's curious. So th- is that the piece I'm missing then? Is the embedding model that does that convert this chunk of text into um, floating point numbers? Yes. And then the vector database does the indexing and searching yes. for similar vectors. Okay, so that's where I need to download this llama. Download this llama, I love that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, when you have the vector database set up and have uh, decided which embedding model to use and then maybe linked uh, that all up, for example, with Langchain, which is an, a powerful open source tool to link various uh, components that are related to uh, machine learning models, especially uh, large language models. Um, then there's another leaderboard, for example, where you could start out of uh, open source large language models and they uh, they have been benchmarked according to various metrics. And um, yeah, most of the models on that leaderboard um, are based today on the LAMA models because uh, there's those are just the models that have had the most optimization that perform the best on low spec hardware or uh, or like normal consumer grade uh, hardware that uh, that many people have at home and um, so those llama models they can normally be recognized by by their size yeah there's the biggest one is 65 billion parameters and they have uh, some are called 30 billion parameters but it's actually 33 so it's slightly inconsistent you will find some naming using 33 billion 30 billion and then there's 13 billion and 7 billion parameters that, that's what the llama based models are but today uh, the leader 
or right now it's it's also constantly changing uh, the leader of the open source large language models is actually a 40 billion uh, parameter model that's called falcon and that's completely uh, unrelated to uh, to the llama models it was released by a research institute um, in abu dhabi and has, yeah. has a significant advantage over the Llama models uh, when it comes to licensing. The license is much more permissive. Yeah, Meta has published their first-gen models uh, with a license that says uh, you can do research on it. Yeah, and better do your own research. I'm not giving legal advice, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the Falcon models, um, they... Uh, they are very capable and uh, have a more permissive license. But right now, as we speak, the drawback is still that for the Lama models, just uh, much more optimization has been done. Yeah, Falcon right now uh, would perform not as well as a uh, similarly capable Lama model. But this is like breaking news when we're, we're talking this has all happened in the past few months. It has happened in the past few months, yes. And Falcon yeah. is, I think, uh, not more than two months old. So you've done this locally with yes. your own data sets, right? Uh, and I want I want you to tell me what you've been using it for personally, but yes. also like what performance, which models do you choose? What kind of performance do you get out of it? Mm -hmm. So uh, at first, I just wanted to try out uh, what what can I actually do with those models? Yeah, because I'm really really excited about GPT-4 and uh, what it can do. The the models uh, behind that they are very powerful, very capable. Um, but also there's a drawback. Um, sometimes I'm not sure if I'm writing a query, will it be considered inappropriate? Yeah. Or would I, will I get flagged? And just the horror of, uh, of, of maybe losing access to that kind of resource, <laughs> uh, because, uh, some, some value system that has been used to, uh, to filter the prompts, uh, doesn't, uh, exactly match my own value system. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so it's a, it's basically a matter of, of, of freedom and just be, uh, being able to, to just, uh, put my unfiltered thoughts into a large language model and of course if it's running <laughs> locally then uh, then uh, I, I have nothing to worry about uh, regarding that and so um yeah but mostly i've i've really been uh, doing benchmarking and uh, comparing and uh, linking it all up recently i've posted something to my github as well uh, which is i i uh, cleaned up my own langchain code which has this toolchain uh, that that we've been talking about with a vector database with the embedding model with a large language model and uh, is uh, somewhat easy to use, at least for me. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has had a look at it yet. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to, there's a new model that's being released and I just want to drop it in quickly. Uh, if that model is Llama based, then I can try it out rather quickly. And, uh, yeah, so I've been using it for various uh, documents and, uh, We've been posting about it. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to only use uh, public domain uh, data when I make a LinkedIn post or something like that yeah. <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. Um, but it works quite well with books. Yeah, recently, I, for example, I've used the Bible, which is one of the public domain books that just comes to mind. Yeah, it's uh, fairly uh, yeah. big. And then I just wanted to know how long does it take to to uh, create embeddings from it? And it's, turns out on my system, it's like uh, less than a minute and I have all of the Bible uh subdivided into snippets and uh, those snippets uh, created embeddings from them yeah uh, so we'll start we'll sidestep the whole religion discussion yeah of course of course that's a nice large open source collection of books right yes that makes sense yes 
And there's lots of open source data out there. And you can just, yeah, you can use yearly reports of companies. You can use whatever, uh, you might have put into the data lake of your own company. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah. it's suddenly becoming much, much more exciting to, uh, in terms of what's possible with, with all the data that has been uh, just assembled in some cases over many years. So, uh, Give me the numbers. So how long on your laptop, which presumably mm. is like a reasonable spec laptop, mm -hmm. how long does it take you to index, if that's the verb, the Bible, and then what kind of query performance do you yeah. get from it? Uh, yeah, well, I, I've uh, recently, uh, because uh, in part motivated by that uh, that Google memo, I've recently <laughs> bought a fairly beefy machine. Yeah? So it's not a laptop <laughs> okay. anymore, it's a desktop, and it has a 4090 in it, uh, which is uh, uh, currently the top-of-the-line NVIDIA graphics, uh, graphics card. And okay. uh, when I uh, create embeddings from the Bible, uh, on that machine, it takes less than a minute. But also, uh, I wouldn't expect it to take much, much longer on uh, lower spec machines. Yeah, I would need to do testing on that. But currently, uh, I'm saying, what's the point? I want to use the best I have available, and uh, yeah, yeah. I might move into clusters if I hit some limits. Uh, but I don't. But if uh, I'm doing uh, this at home, I can mm -hmm. expect minutes, not minutes. I would say overnight. Yeah. So uh, what yeah. I've seen is I've I've had a fairly large corpus of texts, uh, 1.6 gigabytes, and I split them up into documents that are 1,000 characters long, and that took a few hours on that same machine. But I've also noticed that uh, that is much quicker if I use documents that are only 500 characters long. Yeah, so it seems to be nonlinear to me. Um, Take it with a grain of salt. I haven't done a study on this. It's just, just my <laughs> impression from what I've been doing. Currently, I much prefer a document length of 500 characters just for the performance reason. Oh, so this is another decision you've got to make going into yes. it. You need to choose your embedding yeah, yeah, yeah. model. You need to choose your chunk size. Yeah. Do you end up iterating a lot and just yes. try tweaking parameters, seeing what's going to happen? Yeah, the, the reason I've uh, I've decided I want to publish something on GitHub is, is because I noticed I just started out scripting something with Python and with Langchain, and I I, I cannot actually Python, so uh, I, it became uh, something like. Uh, unwieldy when I wanted to extend it further. And so I thought, okay, uh, now I need to do some design pass on it. And so I thought, okay, let's, let's take open source as a motivator. If I want to, uh, well, publish something that another person might theoretically be able to use, then what would be an interface? Yeah. And then, uh, from that perspective, I arrived at a design that is now, uh, again, much, much more extensible and uh, configurable uh, and more wieldy again than what I previously had. Um, yeah, and I think uh, it's precisely what you say. I want to uh, fiddle with the parameters. I want to drop in different uh, models of different quantizations, try different document sizes, compare, and there's so many variables. Yeah, and so it's really important if I want to have meaningful uh, knowledge uh, that that I'm methodical about it and and systematic, and so it's uh, it's important to to design it well. Yeah, this is cool. You're a home AI researcher. Now. <laughs> yeah, officially. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then so the the. The really big job is getting this language model, which you do from someone else. The lesser but still quite chunky job is indexing the corpus, in this case, the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then you've got this final vector database output, right? Yes. And that's a thing you can deploy to someone else and they can start querying. 
Mm, yes, uh, I mean, I can, of course, host a vector database anywhere, or I can also use just um, some cloud API. Yeah? If it's not data that mm. I really need to keep on my own systems, then uh, there are cloud providers. There are also cloud providers which uh, which uh, care about privacy. And uh, so there's, there's many options there. And so uh, this this whole process, yeah, you, you can, you don't even need a local embedding model if, if you don't care about the data really uh, remaining private. You can use an open AI embedding model. They have a good offering there. It's, uh, it's becoming less and less expensive in terms of per token cost. Um, so there are many, many options. Okay. I think where I'm getting to in this is I can imagine a future where I've got an AI trained on the data I'm interested in. Mm. Maybe I've trained it on all the emails I've ever written and all the blog posts I've yes. ever written. And then I would like to deploy that to my phone where it could write emails for me on the go. Yes. Are we approaching that future? Uh, there are people who are already doing that, uh, kind of pre-writing their emails uh, based on uh, what they can do with AI and what's, what's popular uh, for people who are doing that who are not that familiar with coding, for example, they they have access to low code or no code uh, tools that also provide a way of, for example, using Langchain, connecting the Gmail API with uh, with the OpenAI API. Yeah, so uh, right now it's just uh, maybe a combinatorial explosion of what's possible. Yeah, that's uh, so what you <laughs> describe. It's uh, depending on how much you're willing to do yourself. It's not the future. It's already possible and it's already being done. Oh, so we're in the actual productionizing phase of this stuff. Yeah, of many, many things. It will take many years until the potential of what's currently out there uh, has been, uh, well, uh, exploited. Okay, where should I be looking? I mean, have you got any recommendations? <laughs> well, uh, I think right now uh, it's... Uh, there are just so many possibilities um, and the development is progressing so rapidly that I would say um, what's a good starting point is precisely this uh, this architecture where you're using a vector database to use be able to use some data that's just not uh, been used in any training uh, or fine-tuning process for, for models and mm -hmm. uh, then use an embedding model, use a large language model and then look, for example, what I've been doing recently, look into more of the Langchain features. Langchain has really a lot of ways to deal with the limited context size of the large language model to do compressions using large language models again to extract data from various uh, formats of documents and uh, so even there yeah and then combine it with a business use case maybe uh, something something that you care about personally something uh, that uh, maybe uh, if you have a business if you if you know business owners talk to them uh, what what are their challenges and then just uh, yeah connect uh, Maybe connect the dots, and I would say, due to the sheer number of uh, possibilities of combining, and uh, also to, uh, due to the speed of development, um, it's uh, for me the question is not uh, where should I be looking, but uh, what filter should I apply so that I uh, end up actually doing something and not only being overwhelmed <laughs> by by all the things that are there uh, to be used. Yeah, the you're the classic kid in the candy store problem yeah, if you've got too yes, many exactly, options. Yes. 
Okay. Is there something in particular you're working on other than slicing up the Bible? Mm, yes, of course. Um, so currently, uh, I'm just uh, starting out to look for a job. And obviously, there are applications there. Yeah. So um, I, in the beginning, I just take a somewhat global perspective. And I, I think about what, what are the fields that I would most uh, like to be working in. And mm. uh, so my current challenge is to just find out who are the major players in each of the fields in the domains. And um, so obviously, uh, when you've got a big company, uh, you're also have to publish lots and lots of stuff and then i can just create embeddings of the yearly <laughs> reports maybe maybe even of job postings yeah and yeah. Uh, then um, ask natural language questions about it yeah so i make progress on my skill set when it comes to llms at the same time as i <laughs> as i narrow down uh where where i would like to go next yeah so this is right now what what i'm thinking about regarding llms that's brilliant you you employing ai for your job search yes. That's great fun. But how's that working? Are you like, you pick five companies you like and you index them all, or you just, yeah. is there like, you, uh, here's a particular company I'd like to learn about. So yeah, I'll query that. There, there are definitely some companies that I'm uh, eager to be working for potentially, uh, no matter uh, what what they are currently doing and publishing. And in that case, it's easy. I just try to find out uh, what they do. In some cases, uh, I'm just... Uh, I just join a meetup where where there's somebody from that company. Yeah, that's that's a, a low tech way Trying of both. approaching it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so there's still a place for natural intelligence course, and talking to human yeah. beings, uh, and it's a much more efficient way. Yeah, th than taking the public route, taking the information that everybody can access, and then uh, yeah, I think a big company that's hiring is always also has a spam problem, and then uh, yeah, the the public route to to hire is uh, is often the one that's uh, much more resource intensive as well. But then, yeah, um, yeah so uh, I... Well, one thing that I have in mind is I'm going to take the Fortune 500 and um, then I'm uh, going to see how do they publish their, their yearly reports if they publish them in English. Um, and uh, then also going to see like... Uh, AI, what what are they writing about AI? What uh, what maybe a subsidiary of theirs is uh, working, uh, doing work related to that field? Then other other important technologies. I'm uh, I'm really passionate about the potential of robotics as well, of fusion energy, and I can just uh, yeah browse their publications and their their reports uh, according to well, are they connected to that? Then in, in what way are they? Uh, how are they focusing it? Where should I turn? Then maybe I will just uh, look at the website of some subsidiary instead of the of the main corporation, yeah, in that case. Mm. And narrow down uh, what's the most efficient way to approach a potential employer who I know nothing about yet. Yeah, I'm <laughs> only passionate about the domain they are engaged in. Yeah. This is the coolest and definitely the nerdiest approach to job searching I've ever heard. So four marks there. <laughs> we should talk a bit about the um, the other side of AI, which is prompt engineering. When you've got yes. all these models, what do you actually say to the thing? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the thing is, if you have a model that doesn't have that many parameters, a small model, then prompting and prompt syntax is really, really important. So if... For example, there there are some small models uh, where if you like leave out a, a space at the wrong point, or where if you don't use exactly the the prompt syntax that was also used in fine tuning them, then they will mm. not produce useful output, or the usefulness of their output is really uh, decreased. Yeah, this is a big disadvantage that a very small model has, for example, versus what we know from 
the the big uh, models and GPT-4 especially where you are really free to just uh, prompt in any way. And um, so uh, recently I've mostly been using the 30 billion size models or 33 um, and they they are really much better at that already. They provide people more leeway. They will be uh, more, more accepting of uh, free form input. Uh, still, it's important when I build a pipeline uh, to have some uh, some structure that makes sense for a prompt. Yeah, if I know, okay, I will put lots of document snippets in the prompt together with my query, and then maybe I also have a conversation memory, which is another uh, very important component if you want to do conversation and not just have uh, like a zero shot. Uh, I think it's called prompting, and just expect the the desired output within just one one interaction um yeah then the the prompts sometimes they become somewhat complex yeah and then it's important to have some formatting which will let uh, the large language model so to say make sense of what's the prompt yeah and then they have like right. 10 snippets from some report and then they have the what has been gone uh, what has happened previously in the uh, ongoing conversation and then there's the actual query and yeah uh, so Maybe uh, the next few days I'm going to experiment also with uh, smaller models and see uh, what's the complexity that I can still expose them to while expecting uh, output that makes sense, output that's useful. And then, of course, they, they perform much better. Yeah. So this is if I want to run stuff in parallel or if I just want to yeah, uh, do async stuff, then using smaller models is very interesting and attractive. But I, I need to know what can they do and what can those generalized models do? Where do I use specialized models? Options, options. <laughs> oh, okay. So, do you are you saying that you, with a smaller model, you you have to be more careful about talking to it, yes. but it still gives you very high quality results back? Potentially, yes. Uh, so, it depends very much on the fine tuning that the model has, and um, then how how it relates to uh, to my use case. And um, yeah, so uh, it's. Where, where I really need to do some experimenting recently. As I say, I've been using 30 billion parameter models for just about anything, but it's a waste of resources for, for some use cases. Yeah. If I just want to sum <laughs> something up, yeah, I, I, I give it a prompt and I just want to use the language capability of the model to give me a summary of what I've presented it to be used in the next step of like a chain of language models. Uh, then I might imagine a smaller language model is already capable of that, but I need to test it and uh, also uh, see what works and what doesn't work for for the use cases that I have in mind. Right. So do these language models, do they ship with, like, here's how to talk to it? Yes. Or is that trial and error? Yeah, well, uh, there's on for the models on Hugging Face, there's something called a model card. And every model should have a model card which, uh, which lists its uh, prompt syntax. In the best case, yeah. Sometimes, right. yeah. Sometimes, uh, whoever uploads a model there is not too tidy about it, and then uh, people have to figure out. Okay, I have this model. There's nothing in the model card, but maybe there's a link to the model that it was based on, or that it is a quantization of. And then uh, sometimes it's also a matter of okay, this uh, it just says this model uses the Vicuna 1.1 prompt. Yeah, and then uh, if you if you know where okay. to find that, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, in that case, there's the uh, I think. Uh, it's on GitHub, I think it's called Uber Booger or something like that. And they have like just a folder of common uh, prompting syntaxes. 
um, where if you know where that is, you can uh, look into that. And it's fairly likely if a model card says, I want that prompting syntax, that uh, you can find that prompting syntax in that repo. <laughs> <laughs> this is from, I've just started reading like an old sci-fi book yeah. called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Oh, I, I don't know that. And the lead character has been trained in this special language on how to talk to AIs. Yes. Oh. Um, they've got a name for the language, but... It's about Loglum or something, yeah. but it's really reminding me of that. Indeed, yes. <laughs> That's superb. So um, I think I think you've given me enough to get going, actually. Where's the first place I should go and download mm. after this conversation? Yes. So I think for... I would personally recommend uh, to get started with Langchain. And uh, Langchain is basically this big toolbox which, which enables you to link uh, lots of components together, whether it be uh, those APIs from OpenAI, from Anthropic, from uh, Google probably also, uh, other providers. Um, and um, then you can just start out. Maybe maybe you get free credits from some of the API providers and can experiment there. Uh, they have lots of tutorials. They have descriptions of uh, basic use cases, getting started page. Yeah, so um, just start out with the simple use cases and then... Um, but once once uh, once you figured out uh, some of the components, then uh, you can uh, you already know you can run your vector database locally. You can download an embedding model to to actually use the vector database with your own documents. Then, uh, for example, if you're using Python, then you will need a component like PyPDF, but it's easy to install. It's just a Python package. Yeah, and then okay. yeah, uh, then you have on hugging face you have those leaderboards of the open source models. Yeah, the, for the embedding models and for the open source large language models as well. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, then yeah, then there's a Llama CPP Python. I think is a very good pa package right now, which is the one that enables the mixed mode between CPU and GPU for the Llama based models. And also there's some preliminary work on the Falcon model, that the one from Abu Dhabi. That's also right. receiving their first optimizations. And you are actively blogging about this, so we can also check your blog for yes. tips. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm writing on LinkedIn and I'm blogging about it. And uh, yeah, so I don't really know what, uh, what I will discover next, but... Uh, I, <laughs> That's the joy I, of research, I'm eager right? to publish it, spread the mes message about what's uh, possible today, yeah? Because uh, basically, if, if you're a student at university, you can just uh, try it out, get into the field, and there's lots of potential. There's basically... Uh, lots of uh, lots of really early uh, work yet to be done, yet to be discovered, uh, publish about, then uh, talk about, and it connects to just about any domain that that is in some way cognitive. Yeah, so uh, it's a, it's a thing that will go on for at least years, uh, if not longer, and uh, yeah, who knows where it will go. Yeah, I can totally see that shaping the next few years of the discussion. Yeah. It's like a rich, ripe field. That's we're only really months into open source bedroom hackers exploring, mm. right? Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, great fun. Well, in that case, we'll have to have you back in the podcast in a year or so, and you can tell us how far you've got. I look forward to it. Great, Toby. In the meantime, thank you very much for taking us through it, and thank you, Toby. Thank you very much. That was truly enlightening. And I think I now know enough to achieve one of my real-life goals, which is to download transcripts of all David Bowie's interviews over the years and get something that could rewrite my LinkedIn posts in a tone that I really respect. 
I suppose the flaw in that plan is it assumes there was one David Bowie when really we got a different one every few years. He was a great chameleon, as they say. Over here, we're much more stable than that. And we'll be back next week with another developer lending their voice to the global conversation. So make sure you catch it by clicking like and subscribe and follow and notify and rate and all those good things. And, you know, drop me a comment. As great as AI is, there's still no substitute for hearing from real people. That's the very raison d'etre of this podcast, isn't it? So check out the show notes if you want to get in touch with me. Check out the show notes if you want to get in touch with Toby, because at the time of recording this, he is available to hire. On your marks, get set, go get him. And he also gave me a list of links that you'll want to look at if you want to learn more about this field. They're in the show notes too. All of which I think brings us to the end of this episode. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Toby Funkheinel. Thanks for listening. Thank you.